This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning again. Guys, that chili cook-off was fun, if you were here. Uh, huge props to Ava Rossellini. You guys in here? I don't think so. Uh, with her uh, Texas brisket chili, uh, won the, the first place prize, and it was delicious. Uh, also, thank you to Kyle, who, if you were here, mopped up our mess that we had over here this morning. It rains a little bit inside of our building on occasion, uh, and Kyle took care of it this morning, and that is uh, servant leadership on display there. Thank you very much, Kyle. Um, we are continuing our sermon series in 2 Samuel, and I wonder if you've heard this phrase, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you heard this phrase? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's actually a quote from the Bible, from Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Have you ever been sick from deferred hope? Now, kids in this room, you seven up kids, uh, so like that, that eight to 12 range, um, there's something I've noticed about you guys. You tend to be some of the most patient because younger than you, like toddler age range, they, they, can't, they haven't quite learned patience yet. Uh, and then older than you, I've, I've got a little bit of a secret. Uh, we don't have to practice patience in the same way because adults are just able to make happen whatever they want to happen. You have to wait for snack. Adults don't have to wait for snack. You want McDonald's for lunch, adults get to make McDonald's happen for lunch. Okay, I'm lying a little bit. Adults also get sick from deferred hope. They're just in a little bit different ways. Some adults are lonely looking for spouses. Some adults are lonely in their marriages and longing for friends. Some adults are lonely in their marriages and longing for renewed intimacy. Some adults are hoping for better work situations. Some adults are hoping for children that never arrive. When we have deferred hope, it makes us sick, all of us. And the question for us is, how do we react? Maybe like toddlers, do we throw tantrums? Should we try to make it happen by the power of our own hand? When well, Second Samuel 20, by this point in, in First and Second Samuel, as we've been preaching through it, we've been talking so much about a king and a kingdom. And this kingdom was supposed to be so good. And I don't know if you'll remember this language, but it's supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It was supposed to be a nation that all the world was jealous of, that was going to come to and say, how did you do it? And for a moment, it appeared that David was going to be that king that was going to make that kingdom come. But when his failures became evident and hope is deferred yet again, we see people do three different things in the face of deferred hope. In their hope deferred heart sickness, they react in three ways. And I hope that as we look at their three reactions, that we will learn how to react better. So if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 20. Second Samuel chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. 
But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan, from, from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in the house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cariathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in the sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out, and Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city and stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And in this passage, there are three main characters whose hope deferred heart sickness teaches us something about what we should do in the midst of our own hope deferred heart sicknesses. When we became Christians, we supposed that there there was so much hope for our stories, right? We believed that God fought for us, We thought that we could hope in our lives again, that there would be blessings and prosperity, comfort and ease. But then we started facing the Christian life, and it involved much more suffering than we anticipated. And our hopes started faltering. Will God actually be good to us? Did God actually say that this was good for us? Maybe I made the wrong choice, and God is holding out on me until I fix it. 
our hope is deferred and we become heartsick. Now, the most extreme of these heart sicknesses cause us to doubt God Himself because we don't like what He has to say about what His kingdom is like. We had hoped that the kingdom would just reinforce what we already believed. And this is Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba is the person who rebels against David's kingdom because he believed that God's kingdom would reinforce what he already believed. He was hoping for a kingdom, but verse 1 says that he was a Benjaminite. Do you know who else was a Benjaminite? King Saul. Sheba's hope was that his tribe, his people, his name would be the one to bring the kingdom of God. He could not and he would not accept this David of the tribe of Judah as the one who would bring this kingdom. It was unjust, backwards, and cruel for the plan to be changed now. And in Sheba's mind, it ought not to be this way. And so he rejects God's kingdom for open rebellion. Sheba thought God's kingdom was cruel, backwards, and unjust because of God's rejection of Saul, his family member. And because Sheba couldn't see David fulfilling the promises that God has made, he rejected it outright. And I think we do very much the same thing. We don't see God's promises being fulfilled. We don't believe what he says his kingdom is going to be like, and so we reject it outright. We think that God's kingdom is cruel, backwards, and unjust because we can't see God fulfilling his promises right now. Hope deferred has made our hearts sick sick with open rebellion. Now, there's a lot of people in the world who are not Christians who believe that God cannot do great things because in their logic, God is cruel, backwards, and unjust. They rebel against God thinking that judgment will not come because they simply cannot accept what God has to say. Right now in our cultural moment, God's laws on sexuality are cruel, backwards, and unjust. His methods of salvation are too barbaric, involving bloodshed and suffering. Because we experience evil, we assume that God must not be good or all-powerful like he says he is because those things just don't fit in our logic. This isn't just non-believers. Those who call themselves Christians betray these same unchristian attitudes when we sin with a high hand. Now, I've talked about this before, and I talk about this usually with the analogy of Nemo touching the butt. Maybe you guys have heard this. If you've been with us for a while, you've probably heard it like three or four times now. Because what happens in that moment, if you've seen Finding Nemo, is that he swims out there and his father's yelling at him from the drop-off, don't touch the boat. And he looks at his father dead in the eye and he touches the boat. High-handed sins. Rebelling against the commands of God in full knowledge and full awareness that you're doing so. Like the Holy Spirit has pricked your conscience before you do the thing, the, the thing and you say, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. That sort of attitude is dangerous. Like Sheba Vickery, it's a blowing of the trumpet, announcing yourself opposed to Christ and his kingdom. This is open rebellion, no different in heart than Sheba's, even if it might be different in degrees. Now, why do we do this? Why do we openly rebel and sin with a high hand? Like the non-believer, we don't like what God has to say in his word about punishment of high-handed sins or whether certain things should be sins anyway. There are a lot of people who like to call themselves Christians today who like to take parts of what God says is true and take others as false. And we all do this when we sin. I mean, we, you know, we, we say, like, this thing is true, and yet we do the opposite, you know? We betray an inconsistency. But it's different when we announce it with a trumpet and we say, God is wrong here, and I am right. 
Instead of doubting God's truthfulness, what should we do? Well, we ought to listen to what Psalm 126 says. And Psalm 126 says that one day the nations will say that God has done great things. Right now, the nations do not believe that the Christian God does great things. It seems cruel, unjust, and backwards. But Psalm 126, as well as the rest of scriptures, will say that the nations will gather and say, he was right. He was right. And we were wrong. This cultural moment is not forever. This too shall pass. The only thing that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow is God himself. And at the end of all days, what God says will come true, and the nations will indeed say, he was right and it was good. We were the blind ones. Now, there are many of us that wrestle with, struggle with, how to apply and speak about God's commands. Um, Taking human sexuality as an example but of any of God's commands. We recognize our own sexual failures and are humble before others as we share what God says in his words, but that humbleness can't ever transform into capitulation or even pleading ignorance because that brings us, brings us to the second danger of our heart sickness. So not only can hope deferred sickness cause us to doubt God himself, but it can also cause us to be soft on God's commands, kind of the other side, right? And the way that I like to think about us doing this is bargaining with God. We can think about this with toddlers again, right? The first one might be throwing a fit, open rebellion, right? Toddlers just like fall down and scream. You know, but they also try to bargain. If I eat two bites of potatoes, then I can have candy. Adults do this too. We try to play both sides with God, with bargain with him. We don't trust God's word to be good to us, and so we bargain for our own idea of goodness. This is what Amasa is doing in our passage. You see, Amasa was chosen by David to replace Joab as the commander of his armies because Joab was kind of violent. And David was like, I've had enough of this like, want, wanton violence. I'm putting Joab in your place. Amasa, though, had served as a commander under Absalom's armies. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember who Absalom is. It's one of David's sons that was also in open rebellion, and it was awfully bloody. Amasa served as the commander of Absalom's armies. It seems that Amasa didn't care for David in the first place, was fighting for another rebellion, but was used by David as a political move, like maybe partially to satisfy David's anger with Joab, but also as a way to uh, recruit Absalom's former armies under one banner. And he says, you know how I'll do this? I'll take your former general and I'll make him one of mine. Amasa had a hope deferred. He wanted somebody else on the throne. But instead of open rebellion like Sheba, he tried a different tactic. He dragged his feet. He was soft on the king's commands. He took his chances. Amasa bargained with the coming kingdom of God. Now, we often don't think of dragging our feet as bargaining with God or as being soft on his commands. But hear me out, because Amasa tried to play both sides. This story is long and gets kind of convoluted, but I'm going to try to boil it down for us. David asked Amasa to muster David's forces in the south of Israel and to meet back in Jerusalem in three days. Amasa drags his feet and doesn't meet back with David. David sends his other generals further north, and then suddenly Amasa appears in the north all by himself. Now, we learn later that the armies are following behind him, but he's all by himself. It appears that Amasa wanted to be able to tell a story excusing his tardiness, 
while allowing him the opportunity to bow out if Sheba's army was larger. So just stick with me, right? Amasa is not really a big fan of David anyway. He's commanded to be with David, but he looks at Sheba and he goes, this guy might have it. He goes, well, I'll go muster these troops, and then I won't go back to Jerusalem, I'll go back up north. And if Sheba's got a bigger army, I'll just be like, whoop, I'm with Sheba now. Let's go get David, and we'll go crush that smaller army. But if David's got the bigger army, then I'll stay with David, and I'll be like, oh, there was unforeseen circumstances, some storm or earthquake or something, you know, and I got stuck. Uh, but I'm with you now. You want to know why Amasa played both sides? He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to suffer the wrath of Sheba, and he didn't want to suffer the wrath of David, and so he tried to play the middle ground. And we do the same thing. We try to play the middle ground because we don't want to suffer. We drag our feet because we don't want to suffer. As Christians, we say with our words that God's kingdom and God's law is what's best for us, but when we start experiencing suffering, we doubt the goodness of God and we return to those former ways of living. And we do this with small sufferings and with big sufferings. Small sufferings are like laughing at the jokes which malign the character of a coworker because to speak up would be costly. Right? Like, I'm a little ashamed of my religious convictions because I know that everyone else around me thinks that my religious convictions are cruel, backwards, and unjust. And so in our shame, we hide the fact that we're Christians in the first place so that we can get promoted or not be seen as weird. We prefer our comfort over suffering. These are small sufferings, but the temptation to play both sides also hits us when we're in the midst of large sufferings. The constant aching loneliness. Systematic oppression of sinful societies. The discrimination that holds you back again and again in the losses of loved ones. The losses of spouses, parents, and children. When evil prospers and good is slow to come, we say to ourselves, I deserve just a little bit more comfort here, God. Just let me indulge in this little sin. Let me hide that I know you. Let me numb myself with this sin uh, that helps me forget about what's going on in my life. Let me participate in this sin so that I can take the easy road. When our hope is deferred, we're often in the midst of weeping, facing suffering that is painful. And when the evil seems to be reigning, we feel the call to live less than fully Christian lives, to play both sides. Appease the world a little bit and appease God a little bit. I'll be fine. He'll forgive me of the rest. Our first point, we talked about how Psalm 126 says that even the nations will acknowledge that God has done great things. And Psalm 126 will also continue this. Those who went out with weeping will come back with songs of joy. The kingdom that we are hoping in is a kingdom where every one of your stories of pain and suffering is rewritten by the resurrected Lord. The king of this kingdom is no stranger to suffering. And when given a choice to play both sides and avoid suffering, he resolutely refused. And now as people who follow that king, we now see our story of suffering in light of his. Jesus' story was one of cruel, backwards, and unjust suffering. And no one denies this. Everyone that reads the story of Jesus can see how unjust it was. If we're followers of Jesus, we ought to expect that our lives will experience cruel, unjust, and backward sufferings just like his. But the story doesn't stop with the weeping of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. 
Jesus conquers death, and so will you. Your story may appear to just be about cruel, unjust, and backward sufferings. Your story may mirror quite similarly Jesus' story of cruel, unjust, and backward suffering. And yet, Jesus is the down payment on your own resurrection. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit to endure sufferings just like his, which is why James can say, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because even that trial is an opportunity to unite your story closer to your king. And I feel like I'm being a little bit too abstract here. If you're a Christian in this room, the question is not if you are playing both sides. The question is where you are playing both sides in your life. Every single one of us does it. Our duty now as people who follow him is to tell a different story about our sufferings. We don't deny our sufferings. We don't say that they don't exist. We don't seek out suffering as if it would somehow make us holier. But when the moment arrives with a sudden loss or crushing loneliness or the loss of position and rank at work or the loss of our wealth, we count it all joy because we are being made like Jesus being formed into his likeness. And we know that the story will not end with humiliation and death, but resurrection itself, because that's what happened to him. When our hope of the kingdom is deferred, we must not slip into open rebellion or into playing both sides. But there's one more danger when our hope is deferred that I think is actually most dangerous for us as Christians by making the kingdom come by our own hand. And that's when we try to co-opt kingdom language for our own end. This is Joab, right? So far we've seen Sheba, we've seen Amasa, now we're going to see Joab. There's a challenger to David's throne, and it threatens Joab's hope in the kingdom of God. And so he's willing to use any means necessary to protect the kingdom. Joab kills Amasa, right? Now, having just talked about Amasa and how he was playing both sides, you might be thinking, yeah, he did. He got rid of that guy who was foolishly playing both sides. Won't the king be happy that he got rid of that double-timing feet dragger? But if you were to keep reading in our story, you would see that David was not pleased by Joab's deceitful murder of Amasa. It was probably Joab's duty in that moment to arrest Amasa and let justice be served through the appropriate channels, not to take matters into his own hands, but he was going to make the kingdom come by any means possible. Thank God that God shows us mercy when we play both sides, that God is not like Amasa, or God is not like Joab. Joab doesn't do this. He murders Amasa deceitfully in broad daylight. And Joab, the, the, the crazy thing about Joab, right, is that he fully believed himself to be serving God's kingdom, to be serving the king. But he was really serving himself. Christians, we often commit atrocities believing that we are protecting the king and the kingdom of God. And this is especially true of Christian leaders. There's an abundance of stories recently of the abuse, damage, and trauma that pastors and leaders cause as they try to make the kingdom of God come by their own power. The shattered lives that lay in the wake of a leader who thought he was serving the king but was really serving himself. It takes a wise woman of the city of Abel of Beth Maacah. This wise woman represents something in the story that none of the men in the story represent. Verse 19 says she represents peace and faithfulness. And I'd just like us to pause here for a moment and notice that the women in the Old Testament are often, though not always, 
But often, the best examples of faithful, faithfulness and peace, they are the most Christ-like. Sheba's openly rebellious, Amasa plays both sides, and Joab, Joab violently attempts to make the kingdom come by any means necessary. Now, I said I think that this is the most deceitfully Christian one, because I think that Christians believe that we can do almost anything while serving the king. We are unashamedly pro-life as Christians, not because it's a nice political point, but because God tells us so. Christians long to see the unborn protected in our country, but we often excuse violence whether verbal, physical, or emotional, for the sake of bringing the kingdom here and now by our own power. Our hope is deferred, and so we spring into action, but not with peace and faithfulness, but with retributive violence. Thinking that we're serving the king, we're really serving ourselves. When we say that we fight against evil Christians, we do so with peace and faithfulness, not deceitful and violent ends. We don't mudsling build straw men, we don't villainize our opponents, we don't fearmonger. we don't deceive others, we don't perpetuate violence. The ends never justify the means for Christians. Now, I hope you notice that peace and faithfulness doesn't mean that Abel Beth Maaka fails to fight against evil. This peaceful and faithful city doesn't turn a blind eye to the evil in their midst for the name of fake peace, but they were persuaded through legitimate channels to execute justice. Verse 22, the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. Christians always take the moral high road. Do you know why? It's not because we're pompous and arrogant, and it's not because it doesn't hurt to be maligned and lied about, but we do it because that's what Jesus did. Fighting for the kingdom of God means fighting to point people to Jesus. The armor of God that we're supposed to put on is God's word, not so that we can kill people, but so that we can save them. Not defer their hope anymore, but actually point them towards the one who is hope. Whatever kingdom value we think we're fighting for, we must not, must not ever believe that we can make it happen by our own power. The kingdom only comes through humble reliance on the Holy Spirit. And do you know what humble reliance on the Holy Spirit looks like? Do you remember what the fruits of the Spirit are? Peace and faithfulness are in there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the coming of the kingdom. When these traits are manifested in God's people, When we stoop to lowest common denominator as we talk with outsiders or even amongst ourselves about whatever uh, ideology we have that we think that Jesus would agree with us about, we're on dangerous ground. Christians are people who cultivate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think sometimes we're much more interested in cultivating our own lowercase k kingdoms. Whether that's the kingdom of the United States or your own family or whatever right you think that you're entitled to. But I just want to make it very clear. Um, Jesus didn't come, I've said this before, to save the United States of America. He's not establishing the United States' reign. He's establishing his own reign. 
and it is infinitely better. It's not a democracy. It is a monarchy. Do you know what it means in our current cultural moment to manifest the fruits of the Spirit? It means you're probably getting punched. Maybe not physically, but definitely emotionally and verbally. We believe things that are backwards, seemingly unjust. Why would we do such a thing? Because that's what Jesus did. We're going to walk into some arguments that we know that we cannot win, just like Jesus did. We're going to be falsely accused just like Jesus. And although we don't pray for it, the day may come when we are tortured and killed unjustly just like Jesus. In our cultural moment, it will feel like we are lambs being led to the slaughter just like Jesus. But Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't play by our rules of engagement. He defeated his enemies by dying. Make no mistake, the king will not fail to deliver his people. He will not fail to execute retribution on those who abused his lambs. He is our king. We serve a king who can never be deposed, never be dethroned, and who is establishing a kingdom that can never, ever be shaken. We have nothing to fear. Hope deferred makes us sick. In our sickness, it drives us towards open rebellion towards playing both sides into attempting to bring the kingdom by our own power instead of humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Hope deferred makes us sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's a tree of life. Do you know where the tree of life is in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, that place where God made us to live before his face in constant communion with him where everything was perfect and there was no sin. A tree of life. And the only desire that could be fulfilled, as I was reflecting on this passage, right, the only desire that could be fulfilled that would be to us that good could only be the coming and reestablishment of the kingdom of God itself. In the midst of your deferred hope, the Bible calls us to look at the king now, to plead that he not tarry in his return, and ask him by the power of his Holy Spirit to see how he brings his kingdom even here and now through the bearing of fruits of spirit among us. To see that even in our sufferings, the Holy Spirit is knitting our stories together with Jesus. To ask the Spirit to illuminate his word so that we might understand deeply just how good his kingdom is. To ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the deceitfulness of our own, own hearts and to keep us humble, peaceable, and faithful. You know, I feel really bad for Sheba, Joab, Amasa, David, and really all the people in the Old Testament. Because they faced hope deferred, never knowing the king. But we know his name. We've seen his love for us. We know his disposition towards us and that it was full of mercy and loving kindness. And in the midst of your deferred hope, the Bible calls us to look towards that king now, to go to him with our doubts, our sorrows, and our arrogance. And even now you'll find a king who is sensitive to your heart sickness, a king who came to redeem you from your heart sickness and inaugurate his own upside-down kingdom. Second Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. Hope deferred is not just because the king is waiting to see what unfolds. Hope deferred is not just because God forgot about us or forgot about you in the midst of your suffering. Hope deferred is God's plan to bring all that he will to salvation, to repentance, to himself. The king is coming again to fulfill on every one of his promises, as Second Peter says. He's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. And although your hope may still be deferred and your heart still sick, I urge you to run to the king who is able to heal every wound and wipe away every tear. Amen? The king set this table as a memory for those whose hope is deferred. And these are not just empty symbols. You know, we come up here and we take a little piece of bread and a little thimble of wine, you know. Um, they're not just empty symbols, but a declaration that Christ's body and his blood establishes the kingdom that you so desperately hope for. It is a reproclamation of the promises that he has not forgotten what it costs to redeem you, to rewrite your stories, to bring you to repentance from your hard-hearted arrogance. His body and blood established a new kingdom and a new covenant. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite all those whose sorrow has been united to Jesus' death in their baptism to come partake of this meal. All those whose hope is united to Jesus' resurrection and have been united to him by their baptism. This table is for you to redirect your gaze to the one who gave us all hope. If this is not true for you, if Jesus didn't fulfill these commands as you think he did, if he did not uh, redeem you uh, and redeem your story to rewrite it, if he did not establish the kingdom he came to establish, I'd ask you not to partake of this meal. Not because we're trying to withhold from you, but because the Lord himself in 1 Corinthians says, examine yourselves carefully, lest you eat or drink judgment upon yourselves to discern my body and my blood. And his body and his blood establishes a new covenant and a new kingdom. There's nothing else we can bring to this table, solely dependence upon Christ and his work alone. If you have doubts about where you stand with Jesus, please do not hesitate uh, to ask Kyle or myself. Please make use of the prayer that is in the back of your bulletin and come and partake on another Sunday. We would love to help you understand how this story reorients all others. Now in a moment I will pray and then you can come down the center aisle and we'll go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, on my left over here is gluten-free. If you require that, you're going to want to go that way and notify your server. Then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we lose hope 
so quickly. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that with this meal, you would renew our hope, our hope in our King who is so much better than we dared even to imagine. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to stand and let us therefore proclaim this mystery of the faith.